Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bunker Books podcast. My name is Nick Cohen, and today I'm delighted to be joined by David Baddiel, the author of Jews Don't Count. Welcome, David. Hello, Nick. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. David, we are talking at a good time for this book, I would say, a good bad time, mm. in that there is a war between Israel and Hamas going on as we speak, and all the arguments that you're taking on are kind of condensed into this moment because people who still can't see your point would say, hold on, Badil, all we are doing is responding to Israeli oppression of the Palestinians. And talk of anti-Semitism is just a rather disruptive way of distracting attention from that. How Mm. does your book deal with charges like that, which one hears all the time? Well, the book makes a sort of point of not spending a lot of time dealing with the issue of Israel. It's part of the book's kind of polemic that discussion, modern discussion of what anti-Semitism is, particularly if you're talking about, as I am in this book, non-traditional anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism that stems from the way that the progressive consensus kind of relegates anti-Semitism to a lesser racism. Part of my project in that is to say I'm not going to get drawn into long discussions about how all this plays out with regard to the Middle East, because that in itself is part of the way in which anti-Semitism is relegated, because it becomes all about something else, really, which is an intractable situation in the Middle East that most Jews are not responsible for, and that it is my contention that therefore it is racist to imagine that all Jews have to have a strong position on Israel-Palestine either way. You know, that's why I describe myself in the book as a non-Zionist, because it is almost, I think, part and parcel of the same thing, whether or not you're very pro-Zionist or very anti-Zionist as a Jew, that nonetheless, either way, that in this discussion, you're meant to sort of lay your cards on the table first. And my position is, well, actually, I think that there's much to be said, as I do in the book about anti-Semitism, that isn't to do with the Middle East. And all discussions about it seem to get dragged into that mire, and it's not a useful or indeed very intellectual way of talking about it. Also, and your book covers this, I think, very well in a couple of brilliant passages, but it also implies that anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish racism, wasn't there before the State of Israel founded. It stops people thinking about the deep, deep roots of racial prejudice. Yeah, um, well, that that's key. I mean, I saw the other day, and the book does have quite a lot about Twitter on it, and it's a moot point how much this book wouldn't have been written without social media, because I do think social media has driven, you know, this discussion on certainly driven what might be called the new anti-Semitism more to the fore. But I saw a tweet the other day saying there would be no anti-Semitism if there was no state of Israel. And what is extraordinary about that is its deep a historicality, (laughs) because of course, anti-Semitism has existed for 2000 years in a very extreme way you know, and obviously most extremely just before the State of Israel was established, there's no sense at all in which whatever happens in the Middle East certainly reverberates and creates all sorts of spikes in anti-Semitism. But it is not the reason for anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism exists in Judeo-Christian culture, and obviously in other cultures as well now, as a result of specific ways in which people think about Jews, which is a racial thing, and it's not much to do with a geopolitical thing, in my opinion. Uh, it's exacerbated by, by the present geopolitical situation. What I really wanted to say, actually, about you know the present moment is 
you know, I think I sort of feel that there is a sort of more than ever a sense that one should say something as a Jew about Israel. And actually, I, uh, my intellectual and sort of, you know, logical position is that I don't have to. No more than I have to about any other conflagration happening anywhere else in the world. Now, it might be a failing of me as a human being to not be speaking out, just as it might be a failure of me as a human being to not speak out about the Uyghurs in China. But unless you believe in collective responsibility at some level of all Jews for the state of Israel, then it is no more incumbent upon you as a Jew to do that. And yet I feel it. I feel it. Somehow or other, you know, if you don't speak out, if you don't disassociate yourself as a Jew from the presence action of the state of Israel, you are somehow compromised. Yeah, that's. I was going to. I want to talk to you about um, progressive racism uh, because I noticed, you know, given my name, I've got a kind of Jewish name. My experience was you are fine on the left as long as you follow the party line. As soon as you break with the party line on anything, actually, it doesn't just have to be Middle Eastern politics or the state of Israel or worries about anti-Jewish bigotry in Britain. On anything, instantly you become a Jew. Have you found that? Well, I I certainly talk about how, you know, I mean, uh, as regards the Middle East, you have to, for most left-wing conversations about anti-Semitism, you have to lay your cards out. You have to do this qualifier about, I don't support the state of Israel, I don't, I'm not a Zionist, whatever it might be, before you can go on, before you're allowed to go on to talk about anti-Semitism. I mean, you're talking about a larger frame of reference, which I think is also true, sort of made more true by the five years in which Jeremy Corbyn was in charge of the Labour Party. But I don't completely agree, because my book is premised really on the idea that there are unconscious assumptions about Jews that underlie all sorts of ways in which people think, both on the right and the left. Mm. And certainly on the left, if you use one of the most obvious examples from the Corbyn years, say that that mural of bearded, hook-nosed men playing Monopoly on the backs of the world's poor, what I think that mural proves is that there is a very deep association, unconscious association, in a lot of people's minds, and it's more active on the left, between Jewishness and a type of evil capitalism. It's a short polemical book, but you're taken back to, well, hold on a second, these are images from Nazism. And then hold on a second, actually, no, go further back. This comes from the deep-rooted Christian hatred and persecution of the Jew and the justification for for hatred and persecutions of Jews, which is entirely unquestioned. It's not something I would say modern people in Britain or Europe think about very much. No, I I don't think so. I think that, you know, my contention that it's to some extent uh, what we would talk about a lot anyway in progressive discourse, which is, okay, so there's a sort of white, beautiful, blue-eyed norm that we are fed in Disney films or, you know, in cartoons or or in Aryan cartoons or whatever, our idea of beauty, our idea of goodness, our idea of handsomeness, our idea of heroism tends to be sort of white, blonde, blue-eyed still, really. Now, it's shifting now. It's shifting now in a good way because it's allowing for much more brown and black versions of those ideas. But within the sort of white norm... I mean, it's interesting. I'm very interested when when people pick up on this idea because someone did post a couple of animated images the other day. They said, having read my book, 
I went and looked at some films and they just posted images of, I don't know what it was, Rapunzel fighting with a witch and a couple of other sort of animated big recent films. And they just said, who do you think is the evil one without knowing the films in these images? Of course, it was always the dark-haired, longer-nosed, more swarthy-skinned one. That does have a very deep resonance. One thing I felt a bit uncomfortable about with your book is I read it and I thought, well, what does old Badil want? What does he want? Do you want the kind of hypersensitive, cancel culture, bite your tongue world we have in so much of progressive life? Do you want this extended around Jews? Do you want Jews to be brought into the same protections? Because it struck me you did in a way. I've been asked this before, Nick, and the book, in a way, deliberately, because it's a polemic, in a tactical way, if you like, doesn't really make a comment about the value of the intensification of identity politics in our present culture. It just says this exists. It certainly exists on the left, yeah. on the modern left. Uh, we have a very, very high, as you say, trigger-happy approach now, a radar everywhere, if you're a progressive person, to identity and certainly to any kind of attack on identity of various, not just ethnic groups, but also gender groups and disabled people and whatever it might be. And it seems to me that this is not being applied to Jews. And by the way, I think the notion of Jews as powerful and privileged and moneyed exists on both right and left. And that that's why Jews remain or one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why Jews are sort of excluded or there's a suspicion uh, around the idea of them being included in this you know, concern and protectiveness around all other minorities. So I'm just saying, look, this exists. I'm going to model it in the book and I'm going to point out and examine why, in my opinion, Jews are somehow not part of this way of thinking about identity by people who are concerned about identity. And the conclusion is not necessarily for me, and so therefore I want the same thing for Jews. It, to be honest with you, I just know that's never going to happen. Right? I just absolutely know it's never going to happen. So writing a book in which I say it doesn't happen and this is why kind of is just to make people think about it. And I just, you know, I, I doubt I would want it, but I don't even really, it's so unlikely you know, I know, you know what you get a lot, by the way? I saw it this morning. Someone who's a fucking anti-vaxxer <laughs> said something. You, I see this a lot with anti-vaxxers. Said, oh, uh, you know, the way that people are talking about people who don't want to take vaccines is like Jews were treated in Hitler's Germany, right? And you get this a lot, this use oh, of... Oh, yeah. Use of... Re- re- really, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it really wasn't. Go, go, go read a book or something. Yeah, but you get it a lot. You, you yeah. also get, get people saying, imagine if this was said about Jews all the time. And the weird thing about that is, is that, well, stuff like that is said about... Lots of stuff is said about Jews. Not exactly the same stuff as is said about other minorities because each racism has its own particular quality. But stuff is said about Jews all the time and no one does bother about it. And yet there's an odd cognitive dissonance whereby they are still used as the trump card for people saying, well, we're not caring enough about travellers or we're not caring enough about people who don't want to take vaccines. It's kind of a weird thing. think i've long thought sorry so you can tell me why i'm wrong i'm not going to pass my opinions off as a question i have long thought for about 20 years that because life as a progressive 
is very, very constrained for good reasons a lot of the time. You're watching what you say. You are biting your tongue. You are, and quite rightly, being self-critical, examining your prejudices. That means a lot of hatred is bottled up. And when it comes out, it comes out all the more virulently because of that. And I often think that Jews are on the receiving end that, that, that anti-Semitism is a kind of licensed racism, a relief racism, if you want, for people who in other respects, particularly of their middle class or upper middle class, are highly inhibited, highly constrained in a kind of Puritan culture. Hmm. That's very interesting. Well, uh, that could be right. And there is an aspect, which we've already talked about, of the particularity of anti-Semitism that allows for that. Because of the mythology that Jews are powerful and privileged, and also the mythology that Jews are white, racism against Jews can feel like punching up, what we now call punching up. It can feel like, not like racism, but like it's a blow for the underdog against the man, against the people who own everything and control everything and all the rest of it. And as such, what you get, if you're right, this sort of bottled up hatred can be released in a way that feels virtuous and righteous. I do look at people who are in other ways are so constrained and it's as if they're in some kind of Puritan New England church where everyone's watching them. You know, there's there's a lot of policing by the community of the virtuous, the community of the good. And then suddenly they have this one target where racial feelings, deep religious prejudices they don't even know they have can come out and attack. Yeah, I'm sure that's correct. It's a really interesting idea that hate will out uh, in a sort of puritanical culture. Although I also think, you know, in the sort of stupid culture war situation that we have now, the puritanism also leads to those people on the right getting more emboldened by the puritanism of the left. Occasionally, I've talked to people who talk about, well, the pendulum will swing like it always does. And yes, we're living in a very sort of you know, febrile age with concern about all this, but it'll swing. And I think it won't because of the technology. The technology instead creates silos. Uh, And sometimes, you know, it doesn't have the same sort of organic movement that we used to have, I think. Now you just get fractured echo chambers, to use the obvious phrase, where people sustain their own antagonism to the other echo chambers. And so I think that you're right, as well as uh, amongst progressives, anti-Semitism providing a release for suppressed hate. I think uh, I think the overall Puritan, puritanical thing emboldens those warriors of the right who will say, when I'm saying this racist thing or this whatever thing, I'm not just saying it in a hateful way. I'm saying it as free speech or I'm saying it as a way of communicating my frustration at being over-policed. He's not really an example of, uh, of the type of person we're talking about, but when Wiley, the rapper, went on a long, sustained rant on Twitter, and actually I, someone was telling me yesterday it was something like, you know, 127 tweets uh, about, you know, including an awful lot of very, very straightforward, old-fashioned stuff about Jews being in control and Jews being this and Jews being that. I think when he was challenged on that, he couldn't understand it. He couldn't understand that it was racism at all. As far as yeah. he was concerned, these were just white, 
powerful, rich people that he was having a go at for being white, powerful, and rich. And the idea that, that no, actually, it's, it's racist because this is a ethnicity that has had suffered for years because of those assumptions is not really in his remit. And obviously, you know, there are specific issues with, with him, but I think the ability of enormous amounts of, of people to sort of not really see anti-Semitism as racism. I, I mean, are you Jewish, Nick, by the way? You're half Jewish or what? I don't actually uh, know. Well, uh, ooh, as long as everyone promises to turn off their phones while I give the answer to this. Well, well it's, it's being recorded. Presumably. Yeah, but I mean, no, I mean, here's the thing. I am now, I wasn't. Right. What happened was in my family, like every Jewish family, you go back two generations, you're in the, the hell of the 20th century. My, the Jewish side of my family fled Russia under the Tsars in the pogroms, turn of the century. My grandfather and his brother are in, growing up in the Cheatham Hill in the slums of Manchester, and they revolt. They're very bright. They get to Manchester Grammar School. They revolt against everything. They become communists before the Russian Revolution. And in my grand, and both their cases, they cut themselves off entirely from their family. So it's not just I'm not brought up a religious Jew. My grandfather married a working class woman from uh, Newcastle. You know, my family, I had no Jewish family, no Jewish culture. I, I had nothing. But then, you know, you suddenly, as I said, I, as I said, you know, what happens to me was I start writing about just the, the, the growing Stalinism on the left. And now I keep saying, and people say, well, you're saying that because you're a Jew. You're saying that because you're a Zionist. One Labour MP was saying he's writing that because his wife is a right-wing Zionist. No, she's not. She's a lapsed Catholic, you know. And I used to say to people, I'm not Jewish. But after a bit, I kind of thought, well, fuck that. But that's quite important, Nick. Fucking fuck hell with that. You know, I sound sound like some wanker arguing with the SS saying he had made a mistake in the paperwork. Yeah. So I am Jewish now. But that's really interesting, I think. I think most people, everyone should become Jewish for a bit. But, but no, no seriously, I think, I, think, I think if you can get away with it, you should just go into a left-wing meeting and say at some point, well, uh, hold on a second, before you get any further, I think you should, think you should know I'm Jewish and see how people react. But what I was going to say was, is so one of the things about writing this book is you realise how much people who are not Jewish have a sort of quite, even quite intellectual people, have quite a nursery understanding of what it means to be Jewish. So, for example, someone... Uh, Channel 4, who is Jewish and who'd read the book and got in touch with me and talked about doing a documentary, said, oh, I sent it to everyone at the channel. And quite a lot of people got back to me saying, oh, I see. So it's not just a religion then. Right. And you think like, is that what people think? People think because they not understand that you, you know, like me, you can be an atheist and a Jew. And the important thing about that is that my atheism has no bearing on whether or not I would have been killed by the Nazis, uh, or indeed whether any white supremacist wants to set fire to my house. And as such, it is racism, because I do not have a choice. That's the key element of racism, that people who uh, mark you out as subhuman and want to do bad things to you, they don't care whether or what you think about God or what you think about various things. They only see you as marked by blood as the person they despise, right? But it is extraordinary how many people don't have that, don't have that understanding. And what I wanted to say uh, was that, okay, so someone got in touch with me 
to say that they were a Jew who'd worked for the Labour Party under the Corbyn years. And they were at some conference, and this is amazing, uh, and they discovered that there was a document going around there, not not a straightforward Holocaust denial document, a document claiming to be actually educating people about the Holocaust. And it said the main targets of the Nazis were gays, Roma, trade unionists, communists, political prisoners, and he didn't mention Jews. Just didn't mention Jews at all. Mm. So when he claimed, when he complained about that, he was told, "Well, you're just accepting the Nazi classification of you, and you shouldn't do that. You should just think of them as white Europeans." And this is deeply, deeply wrong. But you do see it quite a lot. In fact, I've just done the US version of Jews don't count, and the US editor said, "Oh, this constant thing you say about anti-Semitism being racism." Quite a lot of Jews are worried about that because they feel that that's what the you know the Nazis classified them as a race, right? And what I want to say to that is, A, in the modern conversation about anti-racism, that is absolutely crucial that we understand anti-Semitism as racism and Jews think of themselves as an ethnicity. But also, being that, having your identity forged, as you just said, by anti-Semitism, that's not a negative thing. That's just the reality. Look, t- take it away from Jews. I'm, I'm old enough to have... I've had friends in Yugoslavia when Tito was still alive, all young. And, you know, Croats would go out with Muslims, would go out with Serbs, they're all sleeping together, drinking together, marrying off. And then uh, the wars of the former Yugoslavia happen. And Milosevic and Karadzic and the Serb nationalists are pointing a gun at someone's head and saying, you're a Muslim, we're going to kill you. And the guy would say, well, hold on a second, I'm not a Muslim. I'm, I'm getting pissed all the time. I eat pork. I've got a crap girlfriend. What the fuck is they say, no, no, you're a Muslim and we're going to kill you. Yeah. And then he becomes a Muslim. Yeah, that's so true. number of black writers who've written, who start off by saying the concept of blackness would not exist were it not for white racism. But that's one of the things that comes back with this point about, you know, the way that Jews don't count maps the experience of Jews onto the way that progressives think about other minorities. I don't do this in the book, although I do do it in the US preface. But one of the things is that people who would say, oh, well, don't describe yourself as a race, don't describe yourself as an ethnicity, because it accepts the way the Nazis would think about you, they would never say to a black person, don't accept the idea of white privilege because that only, you know, that means you're accepting a hierarchy imposed on you by the white supremacist yeah, situation. Yeah. You think like, well, well, yes, of course that exists. And of course that's part of black identity, the blues and all sorts of, and civil rights. These are part of black identity and they come out of racism. Similarly, when Jews say, as they do at virtually every festival, uh, you know, they try to kill us, they failed, let's eat. That's a joke, but it is a joke forged from years and years and years of persecution, and it's totally part of our identity. Suppose we had an activist on, and they said to you, well, all right, David, I take on board a lot of what you're saying. I take on board that you're going really back into the dark heart of European prejudice and European hatred, and obviously that is that still lingers. You don't get rid of these things that easily. But realistically, take going back to your book, most Jews are, there are rich Jews, there are poor Jews, but most Jews in Britain are okay. They are, most Jews are white. Why should I, as a social justice warrior, a campaigner against prejudice, 
need to worry about this stuff very much. Uh, well, the book ends with uh, data. I try, I mean, the book's kind of weird about data because it is a personal polemic. And yeah. In general, I don't really like to include lots of statistics, but the book ends just, I think it's from 2019, a very, f- uh, you know, fractional set of descriptions of hate crime against Jews across Europe and America. And you may all know that hate crime against Jews, they are the most targeted group, most targeted ethnic minority, and it's incredibly rising. And when you actually read these crimes, they are sort of progressively more and more disturbing and upsetting. At one point earlier on in the book, I say... It's not true that Jews are rich. Jews are, you know, no more or no less rich than others. Gays, for example, are not an economically oppressed group, but I don't think any progressive person would claim, therefore, it's fine to be be homophobic. And this is a weird sort of over-Marxist thing about everything comes down to economic circumstance. And obviously, economic circumstance is important, and there is there are ways in which structural racism does affect people's economic opportunities that don't apply to Jews. But that's not the only way in which racism and discrimination works. You know, mm. and, and the, 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 the historical example, which is very, very clear, is that the idea that, oh, Jews are moneyed and well-off and fine is very, very dangerous. Because if, you then, if then the people whose job it is is to sort of protect those at risk, those are those who might be under attack from the attentions of you know those who would want to destroy them. Then all that happens is is you get the situation, which you know is my family, where my grandparents owned a brick factory and were perfectly well off, and within the space of a few years had lost everything and most of their family had been murdered. Do you still, having gone through this and uh, and written the book, do you still regard yourself as left wing, or do you just say, oh fuck them all? I haven't regarded myself as left-wing for a long time, Nick. Uh, I mean, it's partly to do with all this, but it's mainly to do with a sort of more sort of overarching intellectual sense of myself as someone who just cannot map a pre-ordained ideological map onto the world anymore of anything. What I'm interested in is detail, factual detail that affects the way that you think about the world. And as far as I'm concerned, that should feed into how you understand the world and it doesn't come from right or left. It comes from knowledge. Would you still call yourself a progressive? Yeah, I would call myself a progressive, yeah, because I think I am an anti-racist. Uh, I'm anti-discrimination uh, to you know numerous people who are disadvantaged. And I think those things are built into our culture. And I do think that some of the ways in which identity politics has tried to rethink the way you know the world is are really useful and you know unquestionably there are hierarchies baked in to our culture that need to be questioned and challenged but the ways in which they're questioned and challenged seem to me to be flawed and the i guess the book is trying to show that up in this particular case David, first of all, can I thank you very much? That's just been fantastic. Thank you. One of the great things about David's book is you can pick it up, take it home, and you can read it in a day. It's one of those great short books you can just read and expands the way you think and expands your knowledge. So I very much urge you to beg, borrow, or steal a copy. If you want to subscribe to the Bunker Patreon. You get free shows and tickets and all kinds of goodies. You can't believe what will be on offer once COVID's over. And with that, I will say goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thank you. 
The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>